0: an amazing thing to think about that what we're embracing in this season is um, I heard somebody say it this way the other day, it's not that we're worried about putting Christ back in Christmas we're more worried about putting Christ back in Christian it's more about let's get the Christ back into Christian again and let's get back what Jesus came to show us and um and it is absolutely countercultural it's countercultural to celebrate Christmas um, over a period of twelve days in which we feast and we and we party and we whatever with them you know I was uh joking on Thursday night that one of the uh, the pastors that uh, one of the priests rather that that I heard um, talking said that uh, this is the only time of year that it's, it's biblically acceptable to have champagne with breakfast every day uh, for 12 days because we're, we're celebrating, we're partying. And uh, he, uh, when, you, when you look at that, that's countercultural, especially because in this season, most times it's um, – we've got – notice that Christmas falls, the Christmas feast falls on the longest, darkest days of the year, literally – Christmas falls and and laps in our calendar over top of the longest, darkest days of the year. I can't remember. I think it's called um, uh, winter solstice or something like that. But essentially, it's the longest, darkest days of the year. Isn't that interesting that that's where we are celebrating? Why? Because part of this is that the light comes into darkness, and the darkness can't comprehend it. And so rather than try to avoid the darkness we just celebrate the light and I think there's this other thing where we as a people uh, really do have the opportunity to over this period of time as, as you embrace this I, I've, I've really found in my own heart as I embrace this idea this thought this movement it stirs things in me that I didn't know were there it pulls on things of me that I didn't know were there, as I begin to, rather than um, rejoicing because there's something to be happy about, rather than the the peace that comes because I feel it first, we actually are proclaiming peace that is not yet felt into a felt reality. In fact, I I shared this um, um, a while back, but it's an interesting thing to think that the word rejoice is actually the root word of the word joy. We think that you get joy and then you rejoice, that rejoicing would be the action based on having joy. It's the opposite. You rejoice into joy. If you wait for joy to come before you rejoice, you'll be waiting until something good happens. We're called, what did Paul say? We talked about Thursday night in Philippians. Rejoice, and again I say Rejoice, why? Because that is the thing that stirs within us that atmosphere of, of joy and of peace. So, Amber Dean, if you would be so kind as to come help me pass these out. Um, we're going to look this morning at uh, um, at a, another example of what the, the Christmas story means. Um, I, I, I love the fact, I've said this before, I love the fact that we're preaching Christmas messages going into. That's just the coolest thing ever. If that's not subversive and countercultural, I don't know what is. Um, and we, um, what essentially I'm wanting to address, just to be clear, what I'm essentially wanting to address is what is Christmas for? So um, I'm going to try to get through this um, pretty quickly um, if we can. And, uh, but I want to address, so what did Christmas come to show us? What did G, What is found within the Christmas story that is supposed to be our message, our idea, our thought, if you will? Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 14 says, And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. So, Activity, the first thing you find is these angels show up and we've, we've uh, identified them as singing, um, but they're saying um, peace on earth, joy unto all men. And I think that the thing that's interesting is um, they're, they're defined as an army. We'll talk a little bit about what that might mean. Um, but after the pre, uh, brief, excuse me, preamble, Luke begins his account with verse five and he starts it this way. In the time of Herod, so you don't have this in front of you, um, but in, um, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, you have what's called the preamble or the prelogue. So essentially, both Matthew and Luke, we know about John's, John's prelogue, right? We know that uh, what John wrote in John chapter 1. What we don't often realize is that Matthew and Luke did the same thing. So the entire book of Matthew and the entire book of Luke were written, and then they decided to write in chapters 1 and 2 a prelogue to give you an idea of what the book is about. So uh, all of Matthew and Luke are written, and then they go back and write chapter 1 and chapter 2 because they want to tell you what's the point. And it's really interesting but spe- because specifically Luke, one of the things he does is he opens up with talking about Herod, who is the king of Israel. Everybody understands that, right? Herod's not a Roman guy. Herod, Herod is his title in given to us by Luke, his title is King of the Jews. Now, what does Luke tell us that's put on the cross over Jesus's head when they crucify him? King of the Jews. So what he's trying to do in his prelogue is he's giving us a background of what's happening and how subversive Jesus is to the culture. And he's trying to say, look, at the end, Jesus is going to be crucified for this thing. So he starts out with talking about who Herod is and what Herod's trying to do, which is preserve his kingdom, because another that's going to, in some ways, oppose Herod's kingdom as king of the Jews has shown up. It, it, it makes, it's almost like uh, I heard someone say it this way. It's almost like have you ever watched a movie where at the very beginning of the movie, you see somebody get shot and killed and then the whole rest of the movie is telling you how you got to that right so that's how that's how this gospel's written it's almost like at the beginning of Luke we have the smoking gun and then he's going to tell us because essentially what he's saying at the beginning of Luke is Jesus is going to get killed for this that's essentially what he's saying Jesus is going to die for this now let me tell you how we got there and then he works backwards he actually works backwards into the king of the Jews. So when you see this, this is the idea of how this is supposed to work. Um, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken in the entire Roman world. These signals uh, that the birth of Christ will take on political dimensions as alternatives to this world political status. The reality is the world's political status quo in the first century Palestine tried to kill the new meek and humble king whose birth was meant to usher in a new kingdom. That's the reality. The reality is it, it is exactly as clear as this. The political status quo had, had seen a new king. This king had no army. This king had no weapons. This king came in servitude, and the rest of the political and religious system was going to kill him for it that simple. So when the political status quo tried to uh, arrest him as an adult, he refused to call down his legions of angel armies to defeat them. Jesus even said I could call down armies from heaven, but what did he do instead? Forgave them and gave his life. What does it say perfect love is defined by? Giving your life for someone else. So kingdom works, he then forgives his executioners while hanging on the cross, and he tells us to then take up our crosses, too, because the reality is take up your cross is literally be willing to give everything that you are and everything that you have on behalf of someone else. In today's nomenclature, the political status quo tried to kill a new, meek, and humble president whose birth was meant to usher in a new country founded on divine virtues that permeate the world while transcending its political borders and machinations. Jesus was the new president, and the rest of the government didn't like that. It's just that simple. So, in this story, he tells us to participate in the new peaceable and compassionate divine country as citizens who inherit the earth through meekness and eschew violence of any This is Christmas shock and awe. D-Day 5 BC. So on in this day, when this happens, the night skies over Bethlehem are suddenly filled with an invading army, an army from another world, an army representing another government, an army from heaven. Think about that. It's what it literally says. The armies of heaven were singing and praising. So think about this. So when a new king comes to take over an area, does that king come alone? comes with his army. Why? Because the way kingdoms are overthrown is by the might of an army. So what happens is Jesus comes as the new king, and he comes with an army. But the interesting thing about this army is this army doesn't come with weapons. This army comes harrowing. Do we realize how ridiculous this thought is? The armies of heaven don't come with machine machine guns, nuclear bombs, um, grenades. Armies of heaven come singing. If this is not subversive countercultural gospel, I don't know what is. And so the armies of heaven show up and what happens is they come into this world and say a new world order has begun. The world is given a new day, a new kingdom, a new lease on life. Caesar, Pharaoh, and Herod and all of their kind are being supplanted by a newborn king, the king of the Jews. He is the long-awaited prince of peace. This is why the armies of heaven are invading the night skies over over Bethlehem. Imagine what this would seem like, like today, or especially at that time. Um, other forces would invade a country. It's not like now where we have radar and satellites and we know they're coming before they know they're coming, right? Then when you knew was maybe when one of the scouts picked up that the army was there, and most likely they were already on your doorstep. I mean, it wasn't, that's just the way that it worked. So imagine what it would have seemed like at that time for Jesus, the newborn king, to show up and he doesn't show up as an invading king riding on on a big white horse. He shows up as a, Humble, helpless baby. God. The governments are on the shoulders, not of a king who rides in on a white horse. The governments are on the shoulders of a helpless baby. It gives whole new understanding to the child will lead them, doesn't it? So from that measure then, Our angel armies are interesting because nearly 250 times in the Old Testament, the, the God of Israel is described as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. Now, at the birth, God's chosen king and the armies invade together. This is it. We're coming to get you. We're coming to overthrow the kingdoms. This is not a killing army, but a singing army. This is what they come to do. And Luke in the text says very clearly saying something specific, what they're saying or singing is glory to God in the highest and peace unto all men. The idea is this is combat by chorus. If that doesn't just, that's counterculture, but that's just what he came to do. The heavenly army sings glory to God and peace on earth. Happy Christmas. War is over. That's what the army says. You say uh, say you want a revolution well you know everybody we all want to change the world and there's two ways to go about it the first way is the way of Herod's death squads that he sent out to kill the innocent children the the way of Herod's death squads whereby he through might and with army and with sword and with spear and with chariot would overthrow nations and the second way is a different approach it's the approach whereby the prince of peace comes of heaven don't launch missiles from the sky. Instead they sing heavenly songs about peace. How absolutely impractical. But that's how it is. Well, in fact some would say how ineffective. How ineffective is that? That we would sing instead of show our military teeth. That we would sing instead of fight back. In fact, one of the things that I want to show this morning is not only that the the, the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of peace, that the nativity story is a story of peace in that that we need to lay down our arms, but also we need to be willing to put down the knives that we put within our words. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they say something to you and then you walk away and like 15 minutes later, you're like, wait a minute a knife in there somewhere, and I didn't really even feel it at the time, but now it's there. I can absolutely feel that it's there. You've had those kind of conversations. You know exactly what I mean, where somebody's so calculated that inside of their words, they can lace them with missiles. Jesus came to tell us to lay it all down. He told us to lay down our swords, and he told us to lay down our knives, and he told us that this is a peaceable kingdom that is changing everything. And so what happens is where Herod's kingdom is a kingdom that through military might was set on preserving privilege and power. Jesus came powerlessly and with no privilege. The problem is that in order for us to preserve privilege and power, the innocent always have to die for us to preserve privilege and power, those that have no power always have to give up their lives so that we can keep our power. That's just the way it works. Do you realize that in in Iraq to this day, 600,000 civilians have been killed? 600,000 civilians. the term we use today is what? Collateral damage. And while we may not do it like Herod did where we go and kill innocent babies because we're afraid that a new king has come, we do it now with drone strikes where we get to sit behind a screen and there's a terrorist there so we have to wipe out an entire block of innocent children. And the reality if that makes you uncomfortable and bothers you, then that's probably good because it, it should bother us. And I'm not saying that I have a perfect answer. I, I, I'm not suggesting that I would do any different. I, I would never want to be in a position where I would have to make that decision or distinction. But I can tell you that that's what the preservation of earthly kingdoms always require. It's always going to require. our power and it's always going to be at the blood of the innocent and jesus came to show us that it doesn't have to be that way and so what we find in this story is that jesus came as the prince of peace born in bethlehem the armies of heaven sang songs about this peace and i realize that the army that combats evil by singing songs of peace may seem strange, but I think it's a beautiful thing. The armies that combat warfare, the armies that combat missiles with songs is how God does warfare. And so I believe as a Christian that a baby born in Bethlehem 2000 years ago, a baby whose birth we celebrate is the child king that Isaiah sang about many, many years previous to that. Bethlehem has invited us into Eden. One of the things that's really interesting, I mentioned this Thursday, is you find that a lot of the scholars actually teach that Bethlehem was the new Eden. So Jesus, in the nativity, started, brought us back to Eden again. He restored the garden. So um, a lot of us believe that what's going to happen, the restoration of the garden is going to happen in heaven. When we all, you know, get raptured out of here and, and split the eastern sky and go to heaven, that that's where the garden is. Actually, what, this, what the, the early church fathers, the disciples believed, that the garden started over with Jesus. That's why Paul kept calling him the new Adam, because there was a new garden that was here. And so, interestingly enough, uh, Adam was born of the new Eve and has invited us into a new world whose political priorities and standards have Adam and Eve's fear. Pride and disobedience is their foundation. John's gospel is replete with the garden theme. In fact, if you want to find a theme throughout John's gospel that separates it, it's the garden. That's the theme that John uses. The gospel starts with John's incredible pro- prologue. John in his prologue is retelling the creation story of what? The garden. He's saying Jesus is the garden. He's retelling the the, 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 uh, the story in the prologue that we find in Genesis. He retells the creation story, reframing creation in the garden through the telling of the lens of Jesus. John forgoes the title location of Jesus' passion prayer. You realize he's the only one that doesn't call it Gethsemane. He just calls it a what? Garden. Furthermore, in John's gospel, whenever they first find Jesus, He's the only one to identify where Jesus' tomb was. Jesus' tomb was in a what? Garden. Furthermore, John's the only one that identifies to us when Mary first finds Jesus, she thinks he's the what? Gardener. So, there is a garden theme to Jesus. You want to know why? Because he came to reestablish Eden. tell us that what God did in the beginning has been restored through Jesus and peace and joy and truth is what Jesus does. So in the telling of John, he says, I want to give you a different way to look at this because the garden has started over in Bethlehem. Eden has come again because Jesus is on the scene. And so in Isaiah, uh, this, this wonderful prophecy, we find Isaiah 2, 2 In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's host shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the mountains shall stream to it. Many people will come to it, saying, come, let us go into the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth instruction. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. So the question is, how many times have we sang or prayed or made declaration? Let us go into the mountain of the Lord. We ascend the hill of the Lord. Let us come. Let us go into the mountain. Well, the reality of it is, this is a messianic promise that speaks of Jesus. We would all agree upon that. However, interestingly enough, have we come to the mountain of the Lord? Because the text is very clear what happens at the mountain. At the mountain, we're taught his ways, right? Come, let us go into the mountain, to the house of the Lord. He will teach us his ways. We can all agree on that. Furthermore, his ways are not an abstract notion. He tells us what the ways of the Lord are that we learn, mountain when he comes his ways are no fighting no hurting one another and no war so the question is if you're not learning those things you might not be learning his ways and if you're not learning his ways maybe you're not at the right mountain it's just that simple come let us go to the mountain of the lord because what's going to happen there we're going to learn his ways what are his ways He's going to be one who causes us to beat our swords into plowshares. He's going to cause us to not war nation against nation. And he's going to cause us to be a people who don't even learn war anymore. That's an incredible thing. And I'd like to be really clear. It's not like I was born some type of pacifist. I've spent more time studying war than I've spent studying the Bible. So many different um, uh, books on the histories of war. I love that kind of thing. So it's not like I just, you know, have been a tree hugger since birth. And, you know, everybody just I'm just some snowflake from the West Coast um, that just, you know, is here to tell you that we all need to give peace and love and go back to Woodstock. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is I genuinely don't see how you can separate the practical lifestyle of peace from the lifestyle of Christlikeness. And if that bothers us, that's okay. But we can't say that it's not his lifestyle. It's fine that we're bothered by it. But it should draw us into doing something about it. So the idea is... Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We call him the Prince of Peace, but what does that mean? Is it just a Christian cliche? Does it mean some kind of peace of mind where anxiety doesn't attack us anymore? Or does it mean something substantial whereby peace is a lived reality? Maybe it might mean that Jesus offers the world in our uh, alternative arrangement that could be best described as peace. Jesus is the Savior of the world in a real. Wonderful and urgent way. The Prince of Peace who can lead humanity out of the madness of rearranging our world around power, priority, uh, excuse me, power, and then the priority to preserve it. So what Jesus says is in this story, we find the Jesus of Nazareth revolutionary in his ideas. He preaches the first century Jew from whose birth we date our common area. Era, this one who becomes the Isaiah prophecy, the Prince of Peace, preached a new way of being human, an alternative arrangement of society. He calls the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that we've said what the kingdom of God is, what's going to happen when we die, we go there and no one would argue that there's not going to be war anymore in heaven. The interesting thing is he says heaven's here. not abandon what we thought heaven was going to be like. We should just change the location. My claim, which I'm told is audacious by some and naive by others, is simply this. Jesus Christ and his, print, and his peaceable kingdom are the hope of the world. It's just that simple. Jesus Christ and the kingdom of peace are the hope of the world. So let me declare, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in what the gospels report and what the creeds confess concerning the crucified and risen Christ. That's what makes me a Christian. However, I also believe in Jesus' ideas, the ideas he preached about the peaceable kingdom of God. That's what makes me maybe a radical Christian. But I like the idea that the root word of "rad" radical is radish. It means the root vegetable to go back to the root of something. So maybe radical Christianity is us getting back to the root of what Christianity was in the first place. And if our Christianity isn't radical, then it's probably not the root of what it was in the beginning. So I believe that the idea of Jesus kingdom coming is for real, but I believe in the viability that Jesus ideas is something that is a lived reality. Divorcing Jesus from his ideas, especially his ideas of how we're supposed to live, has been a scandal plaguing the church for 17 centuries. The problem is this. When we separate Jesus from his ideas for an alternate social structure, we inevitably succumb to the temptations to harness Jesus to our ideas. See, when we have divorced Jesus from his ideas of how we should live life, we then are forced to put Jesus into our ideas of how we should live life. So rather than just us aligning to Jesus' idea that we're not to make war anymore, we put Jesus' name on our war. Rather than the idea that I am a Christian and I subscribe to a new kingdom, rather than that, and that being first and foremost what we serve, we just put Christian in front of whatever country we live in. Or whatever political party we have. Or whatever thing that we want to then condone and make holy. When in reality, the way of Jesus should be subversive. If it looks like the country you live in, you're probably subscribing to the country's culture, not the kingdom culture. Because there is no country that has the culture of the kingdom of God. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. The reality is he has been and will always be countercultural. Why? Because he's not from here. And I don't know how else we can describe when we say we're citizens of another place. We're foreigners. Strangers in a foreign land passing through. What do we think that means? So with little or no awareness of what we're doing, we ourselves in collusion with the principalities and powers of this world in lockstep with the choreography of violence war and death we do this mostly unconsciously but we do it i've done it and the result is that we reduce jesus to being a savior who guarantees our reservation in heaven while we use him to endorse our ideas about how we should run the world from Roman Jesus to Byzantine Jesus to Russian Jesus to Anglo Jesus to German Jesus to finally what we know now as the American Jesus. And for the most part, we envision Jesus as a white guy with perfectly blow-dried hair in a white bathrobe and a light blue Miss America sash. That's Jesus. And I don't know why he's walking on the beach somewhere, his winds blowing, or the hair's uh, his hair is blowing perfectly in the wind. I don't understand why we think that's him, but that's him. And he's he looks like me. It's amazing. I don't know how this works. The reality is when our God starts looking like us, we've made an idol. So what we have to do is understand that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who transcends nationalism, who transcends any other way of doing life overcomes the ways of war as an imperative to the church. And we must take that seriously. If we think the ideas of Jesus about peace are irrelevant to the age we're living in of genocide and nuclear weapons, we've invented an utterly irrelevant Christianity. The challenge is it seems that too often those committed to the person of Jesus Christ see little need to get Jesus mixed up in the real world of peacemaking fact, when you suggest that he should be part of that world, they find me to be a little bit suspicious. So I don't know about that guy. I don't know if I really want him in my club. And the reality of how it's supposed to be, the, the view that we're supposed to have of the real world of peacemaking is supposed to be a world where we as believers stand for something entirely different. Where we don't attack people who have less than we have, but we lift them up where we stand on behalf of kindness, where we don't pick at the LGBT community. We love them because they were created in his image, where we don't become anti this and anti this and anti this as our stance that makes us Christian. But we look at the entire thing and say, it's absolutely vibrating with his presence because he put his presence in it in the first place. So with this idea, It makes it very simple for me to believe that we don't need to be attacking and slaughtering people who don't think like I think or believe like I believe, because when I look at them, I should see his image. And if I see the image of God, isn't it a really interesting thing to think that that actually is not just genocide? In some ways, it almost becomes deicide. We're destroying God's image. We're destroying what God has shown sometimes good reason and I understand that I understand the thought that that we have to to have laws and we have to have rules and I'm not against any of those things I'm not in any way purveying uh, anarchy but I am saying that we better learn to wrestle with these things well because it's the wrestling that makes it real and if it doesn't make it hard then we probably succumb to the culture that's around us so Jesus as, as we look at this, this idea really becomes Jesus leading us into a new kingdom. In an interview, Pastor Mark Driscoll, and I'm using his name because that's how dangerous I think he is. I don't normally do that. Pastor Mark Driscoll, one of the largest, uh, pastor of one of the largest churches at the time in our country, said this about Jesus. In Revelation, he says, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. That's the guy I can worship. I can't worship the hippie halo Jesus, but because I can never worship a guy I can beat up. That's the pastor of one of the largest churches in the country. And so the challenge comes when we look at this what is the way of Jesus? The first thing that I'd like to remind all of you is he does not have a sword in his hand in the book of Revelation. Where is the sword? His mouth. You know why the sword's coming out of his mouth? Because it's his word that does the work, not his violence. And so in this idea that, that, that we've got to have this powerful Jesus, it's the, same re, it's the same reason that many, 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 many times through history you've People always want to have the most powerful king, the most powerful army, the most powerful whatever, because it, it's our sense of belonging. So we do the same thing with God, don't we? Well, Jesus, Jesus is the most powerful king. He can he can take anybody out that he needs to take out. That's not the way of Jesus. So as we close, let's think about Jesus, not in a sermon, um, but in real life as Jesus lived. Luke 22, 47, there came a crowd. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and kissed him. But Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was coming, they said, Lord, should we fight? We brought swords. Then one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know that Peter cut off Malchus' servant's ear because he didn't wait on Jesus to answer, mind you. Notice that. That's kind of how we do things, isn't it? Lord, should I go? And then before he answers, we're already out the door. So, Lord, we brought swords, and before Jesus can answer, Peter's whacking off people's ears. Jesus says, no more of this. Then he touched the man's ear and healed him. Gandhi once said, yes, I'm quoting Gandhi on a Sunday morning. Yes, uh, that's just what we do. Uh, Gandhi once said, everyone knows that Jesus taught nonviolence except Christians. 16th centuries, the church has not followed that example. We can say it this way. The biblical test case for the love of God is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. Let me just walk that back again. The biblical case for love of God is always demonstrated through love of neighbor. And the biblical test case for how you love your neighbor is how you love your enemy. So it could actually be said the biblical test case for how much you love God is how well you love your enemy. And you can't love your neighbor slash enemy by using a sword, a gun, a bomb, or any other violence against them. I recently had a pastor, someone who I love very much, tell me that Jesus told his disciples to carry a sword. And he used this as an example. He was trying to convince me that he needed to buy yet a third um, AR-15. Um, With a silencer and whatever else you can do. Because clearly self-defense, a statement of self-defense always starts with, I got him in my scope. Right? That's self-defense. Like, when I've got him at 400 yards, it's probably not a real threat. Uh, Not that I could even shoot 400 yards, but I'd shoot 50 feet. But he was trying to convince me that, hey, this is, no, this makes perfect sense that I need to buy have all these uh um uh, you know semi-automatic weapons i need to have all this stuff and he was trying he decided which i don't care if he does or not i just think it's funny that people then it's like we intuit that that may not be a good idea and so the immediate thing is well jesus told him to take swords if you're pulling from that that probably means you don't really feel very good about what you're doing just as an idea um but he says that and and that's an interesting thing. So when at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to take swords with them. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Because he does. Um, the, he, he actually, at the Last Supper, tells them to take their swords with them. And that's what this pastor was quoting unto me. But when Jesus arms them, it's a really interesting thing because contrary to what some people think, Jesus is not endorsing open carry legislation so that you can carry your AR-15 into Kroger grocery shopping. It's very obvious Luke twenty two thirty seven. for the time has come for this prophecy to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. He tells them when he tells them to take your swords, take your swords with you, because the time has come for this prophecy to be fulfilled, that they're going to consider me among the rebels who've been trying to overthrow Rome. And he does it to prove a point. Because Jesus did not arm his disciples so they could fight. Jesus armed his disciple. His disciples, rather, so that prophecy would be fulfilled and so that he could disarm them. He told them to take their swords so he could tell them to put them down when it really mattered. He told them to take their swords so that when people came to kill Jesus, he could demonstrate not in a sermon, not in a think tank, not in a pie-in-the-sky ivory tower, About violence, they're coming to kill Jesus, and he uses that up. Make sure you have your swords with you. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Make sure you have your swords with you. And they're probably, like, why are we taking our swords? We're just going to the garden. He tells them to do that so he can make a showing that at the moment when all that you realize Jesus was not the only Messiah pro- proclaimed Messiah at that time. There were many, many, many people who had proclaimed to be the Messiah. I want to make sure we look like all those guys so that I can then tell you to put them down because that's not how this kingdom works he wanted them to falsely assume he was a violent revolutionary as Isaiah says but when his disciples actually attempted to employ violence Jesus stopped them and said no striking back. The idea of, of not being peaceful is something that's really deeply, um, we need to wrestle with very deeply. And what I would suggest to you is that we as a people, we as a group, we've got to really think about, even within our words, how many times do we get ready to say something and we have that thing go through our head of, I could really lay them out right now. I could make sure that my tonight, we said that joy and peace are the atmospheres that bring gentleness unto all men. So Jesus tells them in the practical way and also in a much deeper, different way. No, don't do this. There's a better way. Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, in disarming people disarms all Christians. Because Jesus in that moment when the year was cut off, he chose to heal, not to fight. So what did the early church believe was the lesson from this? They believed that the lesson was Jesus was giving us a different way to live. Jesus disarms us from our weapons of violence. He disarms us from our words that are filled with knives. Next morning, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, Jesus made it clear that this kingdom came from a different world. That one where people fight and kill their enemies was not the kingdom he came from because Pilate says to him, What kingdom are you from? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom was from this world, my servants would be doing what? Fighting. If my kingdom was from here, known to the world because of our fighting we fight over what we believe we fight, we fight with other Christians about who believes what We fight with people about what the Bible says, if it's literal or if it's poetic. We fight with how you're supposed to get saved. We fight about how you're to be baptized. We fight about how you're to worship. We fight about what verses are important. We fight about what uh, is going to happen in the end. We fight about whether there's a rapture or a tribulation. And then if we agree that there is a rapture and tribulation, we fight about when it happens. Jesus said, you'll know that my kingdom isn't from him the people who aren't fighting. Because the people who are in my kingdom don't do that. And so I think about, and that's just the fighting that we do with each other. That's not even including the fighting we do with everybody else. That's not including the fighting that we've done for years and years and years and years and years where we think that the way that we're going to deal with the Muslims, and in fact in many cases the Jews, is by the Crusades. The way that We're going to deal with those that don't align to our beliefs is by the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the Salem Witch Trials, on and on and on and on and on. And Jesus said, no, no, no. If there's fighting, it's not my kingdom. It's just that simple. And I think that that's as literal as us being people who make war. And I think that is as figurative and metaphorical as us making war with our words. I think it's both. I think it's so much deeper than we think about. Because the kingdom of Christ doesn't come from bloody war. Jesus disarmed his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, excuse me. The garden is no place for swords and spears anyway. Gardens are where we employ plows, not swords. So it makes sense why Isaiah said, of Jesus are called to be gardeners and healers, not combatants and killers. The incarnation of Jesus welcomes a new kingdom into the world, and this kingdom looks like a garden. Jesus invites us to beat our swords into gardening tools and start loving our enemy. And, and I, I, I understand you would think, well, what does this message have to do with Christmas? Because this is the kingdom. On Christmas Day, it all started With a caroling army. Merry Christmas. War is over. And he says to us. That this prince of peace. Jesus the helpless. Humble. Baby. The innocent. The government is on his shoulders. Why? Because it's not a government that looks like ours. Because it's not a way that looks like ours. Our government is about influence. Jesus says, my kingdom is not other control, it's self-control. My kingdom is not violence, it's peace. My kingdom is not manipulation and retribution, it's joy, forgiveness, and love of others. And so, literally, that's the nativity story. That's one of the things that Christmas came to do, is to say, the garden's here, and swords have no place in the garden so father we thank you for this this gift this, this great opportunity to to worship you and be with you and love you and live like jesus and 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 we openly admit these things are not easy you know god you know these things are not easy you know that that this is a lifestyle that requires work and sacrifice and struggle and wrestling you recognize God, that this this um, this thing you've called us to, it it's going to look different. If it doesn't look different than those that are around us, it's probably not your kingdom. And you also, God, we recognize you don't you don't expect us to have it all figured out. You don't you don't expect us to, to just swallow it whole. You expect us to chew on it and deal with it and allow it to do its work in our heart. That's really what it's about, anyway, is our heart. Help us, God, that we would love you in a way that's demonstrated to how we love those around us. Help us to love those that can do nothing for us. Help us to love those that look other than us. Help us to love those that believe other than us. And help us to love them like you do. And we ask you to help us to feast and rejoice in this garden, in this kingdom, in this heaven that has come to earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at HarvestHouse.org.